For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. For the very first time in the same room, this is really happening. It's F1 Nation with TC and Alex. And we're in the F1 70 commentary box. Was it on purpose? No. Are we giddy that we can actually see each other and it's not through a laptop screen? Yes, we are. TC, how are you? Mate, it's great to be in the same room. Although we are still socially distanced, I know. We know the rules. We know the rules. Mate, it's great to see you in person. What a, what a year it's been. I thought you only existed on a computer screen, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, a lot of people were thinking that I was some sort of algorithm that just made noise on a Sunday. But there we are, available uh, on a Tuesday as well. Actually, any- it must be said, AJ. Yeah. Hell of a setup here at Biggin Hill. It really is. They have you done just gave an me a incredible, little incredible job here. Essentially, what it means is a load of the roles have been uh, done from F1 HQ, the Media and Technology Centre, as someone has put on the great sign. Great name. What a great name. Snazzy. It is worth pointing out the brilliant job the F1 TV arm has done because it was so very difficult to remote the broadcast. Those concepts take years to make work. Formula One had a very narrow window and yet they've pulled it off with aplomb. Congratulations to everyone involved. Amazing. And and at the racetrack, didn't they refer to it as the broadcast village? Yes. Well, it's now, what is it? It's a hamlet? (laughs) What's even smaller than a hamlet? It's It's basically a country pub. (laughs) And that's it. What a great analogy. A country pub. That is exactly how (laughs) I want it to be remembered. Well, AJ, last weekend off of the season. Yeah. We still got three races Are to go. Are you used to them yet? What's caught your eye in the world of Formula One when there is no Formula One? This is always the fun part because we always take a step back and you and you look at things that maybe have been bubbling under the surface. And one thing that's been bubbling under the surface for me, he's coming. He is on the horizon and he wants you to work on New Year's Day. Fernando Alonso exacting standards. I think it's really interesting that they are saying goodbye to Daniel Ricciardo and they are getting a completely different lead driver in that team. Renault already making noises about the fact they're going to miss Ricciardo the way he goes about it. And one of the things I think they're going to miss is the fact that Ricardo. can you imagine Danny Rick phoning up and saying, you just had to look at this wind tunnel plan and uh, don't like what I see. You can't imagine no. him saying it, can you? Yeah. And yet that is what they're going to get from Fernando Alonso, driving that team forward, whether they want it or not. And Fernando says he's coming back to enjoy himself. That was one of the lines he came out with earlier in the summer when it was announced. And and yet he cannot help himself, can he? Yeah. That that competitive spirit is still well, it still burns as strong as ever it did. And um I just hope he's not putting too much pressure on them. The old Fernando yeah. Alonso, the guy that could have won five more world championships but didn't for various reasons. I hope he takes a step back and maybe takes takes a leaf out of Dan Ricardo's book. As you say, he's, he ain't going to bully them to work on New Year's Day. He has complete faith in the team. And 
I mean, it was interesting to see that Cyril Abitable, the team boss of Renault, what was the quote, AJ? He said, it took me a while to decode what's behind the smile of Dan Ricciardo, which is yeah. interesting. And then he also says that, didn't he say, Alonso is much more blunt. And that's basically what we're just talking about <laughs> yeah. now, isn't it? Decoding the smile. That's, that's an interesting one. I think with people that like to have a laugh, that sometimes they can just get labelled as jokers and you don't see the substance behind the driving. And I think the level he's been at this year has been enormous. A lot of people have pointed it out. I think it's worth underlining. Could have been a really awkward year for Renault. Could have been a year where team and driver get frustrated more and more with each other. That being the case, would have missed out on a couple of podiums. Those podiums G everyone up. There's something tangible in the factory for everyone to enjoy. There's a moment of celebration. There's an accolade. There is, oh, we're making progress. Progress is intangible. Podium, tangible success. And if they'd not got along in the way that they had done, and remember that Renault's statement to Ricardo leaving was pretty, pretty sharp. And it's fascinating to me that Cyril felt the need to understand the man behind the public image. You know, everything about that relationship, the Ricardo Renault relationship, I feel is a missed opportunity in that Daniel hasn't said as much, but I think there's a there must be an element of oh, did I jump too soon? I know the team certainly feel that. Alan Pomain, their sporting director on yeah. Beyond the Grid last week, said every race. I say to him, it's not too late to change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> the old Ron and Dennis just, with Ayrton Senna tactic. <laughs> yes, yeah. and you just feel that the graph is not leveling off there. It's still pretty vertical in terms of the rate of development and what they're going to achieve. Yeah, I just wonder if there's a li there's going to be a little bit of regret, I think, on both sides at the end of the year. Because I feel last year wasn't so good. Daniel then jumped on the back of that knowledge. And in fact, he should have given it a second year. It proves really that you need two years in a Formula One team to properly understand it, I think. I totally agree with that, TC. Uh, time for what's caught your eye then. What's, uh, what's made the news for you? Well, do you know what? I've had half an eye on the safety car ever since I had a long chat with Bernd Maylander last <laughs> month. And um, yeah, look, so the, the, the safety car next year has been a Mercedes for the last 20 yeah. years. And next year, they're going to divvy it up. And they're going to split between Aston Martin and Mercedes. Aston Martin with their DBX SUV are going to have the safety and medical car at 12 races with Mercedes filling in with the other 11. So first question is, what does my mate Burnt do when it's an <laughs> Aston Martin race? Who's going to drive the Aston Martin safety car, for goodness sake? Yeah. And then also, do you know what? There was, it was mooted earlier in the year, AJ, that... Uh, there might have been a deal with Lamborghini. <laughs> Can you imagine a Lamborghini safety car? Aren't there some places in Italy where I think they have a Lambo police car, don't yeah. they? Yeah, and you know, crime has never been lower. Yeah. Funny that, <laughs> funny that. Um, imagine Lewis Hamilton telling uh, the driver of the Lamborghini Countach safety car that he was going too slow. And yet he, you know he would. <laughs> yeah. You know you'd still hear it. That's interesting. It's, it's interesting. an interesting change. It's part of the Formula One furniture. It's it's almost you take it for granted. So that's the first time the Aston safety car pulls out. That's going to be a weird one. Yeah, message of intent from Lawrence Stroll, isn't it? Because, of course, we've got the Aston Martin Formula One team coming in next year and Vettel, Lance Stroll are going to be driving that. So, yeah, they've got a presence in Formula One. Now, a mention of Vettel there makes me think, I know what Sebastian was doing on Sunday 
he was reading the Sunday papers. He says it's one of his favorite things. He's, what is he, 35 going on? No, he's less than that. He's 33, I think. 33 going on 63, Seb. But I love, and I'm not dissing Sunday papers. I love Sunday papers. Yeah, I was going to say, too. I love the Sunday papers. Yeah, no, TC. I agree. But, uh, and one of the things that caught my eye in the Sunday papers yes. was all this chat about Sir Lewis. Yeah. What did you make of that? Well, I was just looking at the list that he would be added to for motor racing nights if the stories are true. Have there been many? There haven't been a lot. This is rarefied air for a person in motor racing to get this honor. The list of motor racing nights. So Henry Seagrave, who was uh, a driver who went in search of land speed records, um, as was Malcolm Campbell. Uh, 1931, and then Sir Jack Brabham, Sir Frank Williams, Sir Sterling Moss, Sir Jackie Stewart, and the most recent uh, person from motorsport knighted Sir Patrick Head in 2015. God, didn't Williams do well? <laughs> they did. <laughs> Friends in high places, I suspect. <laughs> and of course, Sir Jack Brabham yeah. uh, won the world championship driving his own car. That was what amazing. An and actually, Joe, it's funny. I did see an interview by Lewis on BBC Breakfast Television in which he was fantastic, actually. Lewis completely relaxed, playing with... I think Roscoe made a starring role at midway, <laughs> <laughs> midway through the interview. Uh, but very relaxed. Lewis Hamilton in his absolute best. And he was asked about this. I think it's fair to say Lewis is a royalist and it would be an absolute honour. And of course, he is already Lewis Hamilton MBE. So he's met the Queen before, after he won the World Championship in 2008. And he said in this interview I saw, AJ, he'd like to see her again. <laughs> we don't always get the Queen. I know everyone's watching The Crown at the moment on Netflix. Don't always get the Queen. Might get Prince Charles. Might get Princess Anne. You don't always get the Queen knighting I you these days. if Lewis I... Hamilton wants to see the Queen, Lewis Hamilton will see the Queen. Well, that is power. <laughs> that is power. But this raises an interesting question, AJ. What do the other drivers call Lewis <laughs> next year if he's Sir Lewis? Yeah. Vettel has even, Sebastian Vettel has of even asked has. this question. Yeah. He said, what do we call him? I said, you have to call him yeah. Sir Lewis at all times. Immediately disqualified if you refer to him as anything other than Sir. So if he comes over the radio and Lewis has just cut him up, yeah. You can't say, what's Lewis doing? Yeah. It's what is Sir, what is Sir <laughs> Lewis doing? It's going to blur into one, isn't it? It's not going to become Sir Lewis. It's going to be Sir Lewis. It's going to, it's going to blur into one name. Slewis. Slewis. There you go. You see, it's going to turn into that. Wow, we've got to our interview in the first half hour of the show. We're getting better at this, TC. This week, Tom had the opportunity to sit down with Mark Temple, the principal car performance engineer at McLaren. But back in the day when Lewis Hamilton was starting out in Formula One, Mark was on the test team. Then he was on the race team as his performance engineer. And then he was his race engineer. This is a fascinating insight into the early years of unlocking Lewis Hamilton. Well, Mark, it's lovely to have you on the show. Now, Lewis Hamilton, hey? You worked with him very closely when he was at McLaren. First up, how surprised are you that he's managed to get to seven world championships? Oh, that's quite a good question. I mean, if, you know, people who saw him in the junior series and as soon as he came to Formula One, you could see he was 100% a world champion in the making. The impact that he had in his first year, you know, he just blew everyone away by how competitive he was with Fernando Alonso, who was kind of the 
undisputed king of F1 at the time. And, um, you know, from that moment on, he knew he was going to be a multiple world champion, given half a chance. But, yeah, to actually reach seven is clearly um, clearly amazing and, you know, really impressive. And I'm just, yeah, really pleased for him. Do you guys at McLaren, the people who worked with Lewis, do you still feel an affinity to him? So when he wins a world title like he did last weekend in Turkey, do you feel a little bit of joy for him? I mean, I think of, you know, of all the people who've been fighting for the world championship over the last few years, actually, that's mainly been Lewis. But you know, <laughs> let's say, um, you know, I definitely still especially as you say having been you know on his engineering team and got to know him in that time of his life quite well I you know I'm just yeah I definitely want him to win not some of the other guys that's for sure so I'm yeah I'm really very pleased as you say would much rather it was in a McLaren but you can't have everything can you (laughs) (laughs) now let's take it back to his McLaren days can you remember the first time you saw him on track Mm, oh that's a good question I mean uh so when he joined, I wasn't part of the race team. Um, so, you know, I sort of, when he joined, I, it was, uh, I think we all, we'd seen him in GP2. And we didn't, you know, from my point of view, I was like, oh, who's this, you know, who's this guy? He was doing pretty well in GP2, but don't really know what to expect. And really, he'd been testing for quite a while, but that was sort of, um, if you like, off the radar for me at the time a little bit. I was aware of it, but not really too involved. And obviously, first race it was like wow okay a we've got a really quick car and b we've got you know everyone kind of expected fernando to be doing very well but to have lewis in his first season and his first races up there with him was just yeah really really quite surprising and you know it's fantastic to see and so when you joined the race team in 2009 annoyingly for you guys wasn't a great car no (laughs) (laughs) but he still managed to drag you know, that yeah. win in Hungary, for example, great win. Look, yeah. what impressed you about Lewis Hamilton back then? So I think, so I worked with him first when I was on the test team in 2008. So he would sort of come along and we do circuit testing and straight away, you could see, you know, 2008 was the year after he'd had his big impact in Formula One. And obviously his life was changing, you know, much faster than he could possibly have anticipated, you know, being invited to see politicians and, you know, celebrity this and that. And it was sort of, I think you could, you know, you could see it was sort of all kind of blowing his mind a little bit, but he'd come into the test truck, sit down, you start talking about the day and the program and he'd be switched on and super focused. You know, as soon as he got in the car, as soon as he was thinking about driving, he was just always super focused. And coming into 2009, as you say, you know, we it, we had a disappointing start to the year. Towards the middle of the year, you know, we, we made a step change in the car. But through all that time, he'd been, you know, really pushing and determined to do his best for himself, but also for the team. You know, he was always sort of not wanting to be like, oh, well, the car's rubbish. So, you know, I'm just going to cruise around. He always wanted to do his absolute best. And then once we gave him a better car, boom, as you say, you know, one in Hungary. And it was a massive boost for the team because it had been a real struggle up till that point and then that just gave us the energy that we needed and obviously we got another race later in the year in Singapore and it just yeah really helped lift everyone in the team to see that we could still win and that he was putting so much effort in. And his communication with his engineers I mean is he able to drive around problems or or, or just what does he want from a car and I know you're probably going to say oh it's got to be neutral and uh, but what is he best at dealing with? With Lewis, he's one of those few drivers who 
can drive kind of anything more or less that you give him. He didn't at the time, that particularly when he started, he didn't like understeery cars, you know, which lacked front end definitely. But he did learn to to work with that and how to exploit it. And I think actually he was one of those drivers. You know, Fernando was another one, but you know, who could take kind of whatever would they had and then by experimenting and figuring out feeling what the car was doing thinking about the lines they're taking you know use the inputs he's using and actually you know get the lap time out of it pretty much whatever you gave him that wasn't to say he didn't have his preferences you know he liked to have quite a strong front to have as you say a neutral car but actually it's more his preference was for one thing but he could cope with so much more and how did experience improve him during the time that you work with him? So I think, obviously, part of it is once you've driven a car at lots of different tracks, you've driven different um, different cars mark to mark, and they change their limitations, is learning and that adaptability and coping with different situations, you know, car problems. Like, I don't know, in Japan one year, we had a failure at the rear of the suspension, so the car balance went to pop completely, and he was still, you know, that actually he learned from that. Um, in terms of how to get the most out of the car. But I think the biggest thing was understanding how to exploit the tyres. You know, in 2011, Pirelli came along. And as we all know, that kind of changed the face of how you had to drive in a race. And the idea that you had to drive slower to go fast was quite alien to Lewis. And, you know, it was a difficult year for him outside that particular thing. You know, there was a lot going on in his life. But that was the thing that really challenged him more than anything else up until that point, particularly as his teammate was Jensen, who was like the master of going fast while driving slow. And, you know, that kind of unsettled him a little bit. But then he really, at some point, and I, the most, the point where I remember him just like it really having that eureka moment was in Barcelona. Unfortunately, you know, the next year, 2012. So 2011 was like resisting that need to drive slower to look after the tyres in a very particular way. But 2012, Barcelona, after, you know, fantastic pole position, um, we got sent to the back of the grid because of a fuel, you know, fueling error in qualifying. And then the only way to get anywhere in Barcelona, you can't overtake, was to outdrive everyone else using tyre management. And that was like a... A sort of a real switch on point it's like okay this was really important now and put his focus into it and then just turned it around and then from that race onwards through the rest of his that year and I suppose his career he's kind of really understood the importance of that and in a way that kind of characterizes Lewis he's at his best when he's on the back foot you know if you had a bad Friday then the teammates got to be worried about Saturday if he has a bad Saturday, your teammates got to be worried about Sunday because getting on the back foot would just, you know, there'd be a bit of like uh, initial stress, frustration, you know, venting that perhaps over the radio. And, you know, we've all heard the kind of driver, you know, Lewis complaining over the radio, the car's undrivable or whatever. But then get that out of his system and then get his game head on and the next day just come up and smash it. So his brilliant drive at Barcelona this year, when he looked after the tyres, were you looking at that thinking, yeah, we've been there before? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's the same. Yeah. There's like a, for every rookie driver, there's that challenge when they have to sort of drive um, 
sort of Formula One tyres, I suppose in F2 as well, but once you have that figured out, okay, how do I drive slowly but still be fast? And that's, so, um, yeah, it's key. Mark, he won 21 races for McLaren. Um, is there one that stands out? Is there one win that you were part of where you go, yeah, that was, that was the one that I remember? I mean, the one that I remember most, so through 2010 and 2011, I worked as his performance engineer, and we had a few wins through those years. And, you know, I, I still see reminders of those and remember them very fondly. But then in the second half, or let's say the last seven races of 2012, um, I stood in as his race engineer for Andy Latham, who, who was um, on paternity leave. And that was kind of a step up for me in terms of my role. And uh, I've actually... You know, I've still got the photo of it. In my coming into the garage for the first qualifying session, you know, I was a bit like, oh. And he, I remember he came over to me and he kind of just grabbed me by the shoulders and like, it's like, it's all right, Mark, don't worry, just chill out, be fine. And uh, anyway, you know, that was, that kind of, I'm not sure it really helped, but in a way it did. I remember the moment very clearly. Was that Singapore? Yes, Singapore. Now, there, I'm sure there's no link, but Lewis has told us a thousand times that it was Singapore 2012 that he made the decision to leave yeah. McLaren. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I mean, looking uh, back, I can sort of see, um, you know, where that he was in. There was, you know, things going on in his life that he was thinking about. But what I was going to say was, so that was kind of the first race as his race engineer. So that was a kind of a, a good memory as a starting point. But... In the end, we DNF'd from the lead. So we, you know, we had that. And then I think it was Abu Dhabi. Let me just think about this one. Yeah, we then had Abu Dhabi. Again, same thing happened. We were in the lead, DNF for another reliability problem. And then in Texas, finally got that first win as his race engineer. And um, yeah, that was just fantastic. And he, he was basically spent the whole race just behind Vettel. And then I don't know if you remember, but I think it was Carter Kayan was um, being lapped and just got a little bit in the way and Lewis just pounced and then that was it. Race was over and Vettel finished second. So that one really was um, quite special for me having had that extra level of responsibility. Just, just to go back to that Singapore race, um, your first one is his race engineer. Um, he puts it on pole. He then, as you say, retires from the race with a technical issue. But how helpful was he to you or did he just expect you to be at the same level immediately as, as Andy Latham? No so we'd known each other for a while obviously and I'd been his performance engineer so he was very um, you know very understanding he kind of he knew he could trust me and we understood each other already so that is always part of it he would help me and make suggestions and just generally make sure that um, that I was getting support and kind of knew what I was doing but without ever doing it in a kind of a critical way or in a way that would make me feel um, like I you know, was incompetent or was letting him down in some way. So he was very supportive with, with me in that time. And um, obviously through the rest of that season as well, you know, we, had a, we had our ups and our downs, but it was a you know, really good time for me. I definitely remember that fondly. I'm going to give you a very difficult question now because you went from him and then in 2015, you, you um, worked with Fernando Alonso. Oh, yeah. A race engineered. I mean, not many guys out there who have race engineered Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso. Um, can, you, can you compare them for us? I mean, both obviously brilliant racing drivers, but how are they different? So, 
Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Not You're not the first person to ask it, funnily <laughs> enough. Um, I think, obviously, I'm comparing Lewis in the sort of the first, let's say, what was it, four or five years of his F1 career. Well, for Fernando, it was in the most recent four or five years. So different phases, but um, in terms of the way they drive, I always felt that Lewis had just a tiny bit more raw speed. You know, he could always just extract that last little bit. And both of them had this ability to drive anything you gave them and figure out how to get the most out of it. Um, but I think where Lewis had the edge over Fernando is in that time, that last few tenths that come from the real precision that's needed to kind of hit exactly the right, you know, corner apex point and take every little margin to the wall, which gives him that little bit of an edge in total speed. I think where um, where Fernando has the advantage, as I say, comparing different levels of experience here, but is that kind of ability to think outside the, the sort of the immediate driving picture. And I think that's something that most drivers develop with age. And it's clear that, you know, Lewis has that now to a much larger degree, but there was a time where he just was, you know, wanting to drive the car and not really have to think about anything else. Uh, whereas Fernando is more like wanting to think about everything else and, you know, making strategy calls and suggestions and asking you questions that you haven't thought of before. Whereas with Lewis, he's always, it was always, you know, searching for that extra little bit of lap time or, you know, just finding every extra 10 milliseconds. And one of the things that I remember particularly qualifying was always something that I enjoyed enormously with him. And uh, because you just knew that he was going to be able to do sometimes that amazing lap and you couldn't really understand where it came from he'd go out do his lap and he'd come in and he'd say oh man that was a good lap I don't know I don't think I can go any faster than that and then he'd sit there close his eyes and he'd sort of mentally replay the lap and he'd be like mm, yeah okay maybe I maybe I can find half a tenth here half a tenth there and then he'd go out come back six tenths faster and you're like wow where did that come from <laughs> and that was the sort of thing that you just you know, I've not seen at that level from any other driver. What about the intensity levels of those two guys? Because interestingly, Martin uh, Marcin uh, Budkowski at Renault was saying that Fernando Alonso has already told them, why, why are you not running the wind tunnel on New Year's Day uh, with the 2022 car? Just completely committed and intense. Was, was Lewis like that with you guys as well? I think in a slightly different way he was massively committed but sort of a bit more inwardly focused so very um very focused on his own performance and how to get the most out of himself um and not in you know not in like a selfish way but kind of wanting taking a lot of responsibility for his own performance and although you know he definitely would also come and take an interest in the aero development and what we were doing in suspension and things like that it wasn't as much of an emphasis as with Fernando. Okay. Now, look, final thoughts. While I've got you, Mark, you are the principal car performance engineer at McLaren, bringing it right up to the present. Uh, this battle for P3 in the Constructors' Championship, we're all off to Bahrain this week. Too close to call? What's your feeling? I mean, yeah, it's very close, isn't it? And the pace difference between us, Renault, and Racing Point is very tight as well. So... I think it's going to be coming down to who has good luck, who has bad luck, making good decisions or bad decisions. It's going to be one of those ones where you need to get every little bit out of it. And if, if one of the cars 
has a reliability issue or an incident, then obviously the picture can change a lot. So yeah, just I really hope I, you know I know we can do it. We can get the third position, but equally it could be very easy to slip to fifth. So we've just got to stay focused, keep doing the things that we know have got us to this point and not start trying to reinvent the wheel. Mark Temple, Principal Car Performance Engineer at McLaren and man shedding interesting light there on uh, the story of Lewis Hamilton, the early years in Formula One. uh, And a few things stood out there for me, TC, uh, starting off with the fact that he admitted that opening year, he's hotshot Lewis Hamilton in Formula One. And my God, he was good. He was phenomenal. Nine consecutive podiums to kick off your Formula One career. Not bad. But he goes from being motor racing prospect. But the interesting thing there uh, that it was great to hear Mark underline was then he becomes a global superstar. And in his second season, he's having to wrap his head around that as well as try to beat everyone else in the world. Proof that a, an engineer is more than just a guy who makes the car go faster, I think. It, it was an insight into the guru side of a race engineer and that he had to observe Lewis dealing with all of the pressures that come with being a global superstar. And let's not forget, I don't think Lewis helped himself in terms of his choice of girlfriend, for example, Nicole Scherzinger, <laughs> one of the most famous women in the world at the time. But yeah, but that was fascinating. But also I loved the comparisons with Alonso. He also said that Lewis over a lap is the fastest driver. So cut away all the other stuff. When it came to doing the business, particularly on a Saturday afternoon, there is no one faster. And especially we we always hear about, oh, how has a driver progressed? How has a driver taken a step forward? But there was a tangible case study of Lewis Hamilton, 2011, can't wrap his head around these tires. Worst case scenario, he's got a driver alongside him who was perfect in those situations. Remember a time in Formula One when Lewis Hamilton was on the back foot, TC? It's a long time ago now. And it was Jensen Button. Yeah. And uh, and that breakthrough moment at Barcelona that Mark refers to, when he gets on top of what do you need to do? Drive slower to drive faster. Great line from a race engineer. And how confused. Also great insight into Lewis Hamilton. Such a racer just wants to drive the wheels off everything he sits yeah. in. No, Lewis, you're going to have to drive slower to go faster. And he just <laughs> couldn't compute, could he? But then... Look at the brilliance of Lewis Hamilton now, Turkey last week. Wait, the brilliant way he looked after his tyres. Or even Barcelona this year, another brilliantly tactical race by Lewis. So he's certainly got his head round it now, but it must have been fascinating for Mark to be right in the middle of teaching him how to go about modern Formula One with Pirelli. So the building blocks of a Formula One career there of a modern great, but more immediate issue for McLaren at hand is there's a lot of prize money on the table. The difference between third and fifth, which is going to be contested in the next three consecutive weeks, enormous. And just what everyone wants at the end of a really intense season is an intense finish. Well, that's what we want, isn't it? Yes. Because we're, the, we're, the- we're selfish, TC. <laughs> we are selfish, but with Lewis and Mercedes got their titles wrapped up already it really is going to be the focus of people's attention and I thought it was fascinating to hear Mark say that uh, McLaren just need to keep doing what they're doing don't try and reinvent the wheel just maximize what you've got and the team that does that 
will finish P3. It's not all about car performance. It's about uh, getting the best out of it on the day. Right, what's that sound? It's the Yuki Tsunoda alarm, and it's time to talk about Formula 2. Well, you know when you said to me earlier, what's caught your eye? Yeah. All I've been wanting to talk about, really... Is Yuki get this formula? <laughs> get all this safety car chat out of the way. Out the way. Let's because get to Yuki, Sonoda. <laughs> Yuki gave uh, a brilliant interview, I thought, over the weekend, um, talking just about his journey and how he'd never raced in outside of Japan prior to coming to Europe to Formula Three, and he wasn't any great shakes in Formula Three to start with, was he? As you know only too well. But my dream is to be world champion and. There we go. Yuki, good luck with that. But we're also going to see Yuki back on track, aren't we, in Bahrain? We are. After, after how many years since the, <laughs> since the last F2 race? So there's been a gap, but I want to highlight the fact that F2 is back. There is a championship battle going on. Mick Schumacher has the lead of that championship battle. We think he's got a pass to Formula One. He's up against Callum Eilott, same driver academy, brilliantly talented British driver, deserving of a seat in Formula One. Third place driver, Tom's favourite driver, Yuki Tsunoda. And, and has Yuki still got a chance? Can he clinch it? He's still got a chance. Got four races to go in this championship, held across two weeks with a random new circuit thrown in the mix as well. It's going to be fascinating. It's mixed to lose. No doubt about that. Brilliant, over 20-point advantage at this stage of the season. Any driver would want that. The problem is Bahrain number one is always the biggest tyre wear race of the year. At certain points, guaranteed five seconds difference between old tyres and new tyres. Whoever looks after them is going to win the race. Callum Eilott's team last year, UNI Virtuosi, masterful. Prima, Mick Schumacher's team last year, struggled. This championship battle is not over yet, and it is wide open stuff. Team that's been best on the tyres, rolled out of the box all year long, Yuki Tsunoda's team, Carlin, and there are others in the mix who can still win as well. Basically, do not miss the final two rounds of the F2 championship. It's going to be amazing. Quick word on Mick. Yes. Uh, I mean, we know he's brilliantly fast. We've seen that. Great race wins this year, but when you look at his previous seasons... Mm. When it comes to the crunch at the end of the year, does he hold it together? What sort of forms he got? He usually accelerates. He won his Formula 3 championship by winning race after race after race and roaring to the title. Last year was his rookie year in Formula 2. He built that knowledge up. He's still got a mistake in him this year. That will be the worry that maybe at the extreme end, maybe qualifying, we've seen quite a few errors from him. So that's what he's got to avoid. But you're right. He will never have had scrutiny, and this is the driver who's had scrutiny on him from his very first race. He will never have had attention like this, and he will be hoping to wrap it up as soon as possible. He doesn't want to be on the outer loop contesting for the title, and it is an early start. It's well worth uh, seeking out wherever in the world you're watching when it is on, because you don't want to miss the moment, potentially, that Mick Schumacher wins the title. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm going to tune in. You don't have a choice. But of course, I don't think you can turn that TV off, can you? But let's hope he makes it through the airport in Bahrain because very stringent COVID measures. I, I was sent reams of information by the FIA over the weekend. Uh, we land, we pick up our bags, we then go to a tent at the airport where you have a right. COVID test okay. and you then go straight to your hotel and you have to isolate for up to 12 hours until they've had a chance to process your test. And only if you're negative... 
Are you allowed to leave your hotel? So I hope Mick and that lot make it through all that. That's a good point because that's not affected. We've had uh, the racing point drivers affected in Formula One. Thank goodness so far this year, we've not had anyone affected in Formula Two. And hopefully that continues all the way to the end of the year. Yeah. So brilliant Formula Two race, brilliant Formula One race. And AJ, I got to go to the airport. It's usually how it works. I don't know why I did an American accident. <laughs> We're keeping that in. Before I go, AJ... You've had a bit of a week, haven't you? And I think it's great news. Well, thank you so much for this curveball at the end of the podcast. It's an incredible opportunity. I can't wait to get started with Channel 4 and Whisper. It will be difficult to leave doing Formula 1 for Formula 1 because that's an incredible honor as well. There are so many talented people at this organization that whether it's a difficult year, whether it's a a normal year, the standard is high and there are so many people pushing improvements every single race. It's been a truly brilliant thing to be part of. And that's about as fully formed as my thoughts on that get at the moment. Uh, What I do know is that this part of the podcast, I say, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell the people we don't even like. You know, we'll take any listeners here. For now, though, that's F1 Nation this week. We will speak to you next. (laughs) 